Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 1 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 4, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anne Boulay. Elizabeth of York Chapter 1, Part 1 The birth of Elizabeth of York was far from reconciling the fierce baronage of England to the clandestine marriage of their young sovereign, Edward IV, with her mother, a marriage which shook his throne to the foundation. The prospect of female heirs to the royal line gave no satisfaction to a population requiring from an English monarch, not only the talents of the statist, but the abilities of the military leader, not only the wisdom of the legislator, but the personal prowess of the gladiatorial champion. After three princesses, the eldest of whom was our Elizabeth, had been successively produced by the Queen of Edward IV, popular discontent against the House of York reached its climax. The Princess Elizabeth was born at the Palace of Westminster, February 11, 1466. She was baptized at Westminster Abbey, with as much pomp as if she had been the heir apparent of England. Indeed, the attention Edward IV bestowed upon her in her infancy was extraordinary. He was actuated by a strong presentiment that this beautiful and gracious child would ultimately prove the representative of his line. The infant princess, at a very tender age, took her place in precedence, clothed in deep mourning, when the corpse of her grandfather, Richard, Duke of York, with that of his son, Edmund, Earl of Rutland, were reinterred at the church of Fotheringay. The bodies were exhumed from their ignoble burial at Pontefract, and conveyed into Northamptonshire with regal state. Richard, Duke of Gloucester, a youth of fourteen, followed them as chief mourner. Edward IV, his queen and their two infant daughters, Elizabeth and Mary, met the hearses in Fotheringay churchyard, and attended the solemn rites of reinterment, clad in black weeds. The next day the king, the queen, and the royal infants, offered at requiem. Margaret, countess of Richmond, offered with them. Thus early in life was our Elizabeth connected with this illustrious lady, whose after-destiny was so closely interwoven with her own. There are some indications faintly defined that Margaret of Richmond had the charge of the young Elizabeth, since her name is mentioned immediately after hers as present and assisting at York's requiem. But wherefore should the heiress of the line of Somerset offer at the obsequies of the Duke of York, the mortal enemy of her house, without some imperious court etiquette demanded her presence? Some years passed before the important position of Elizabeth, as heiress of the realm, was altered by the birth of brothers. Her father settled on her for life, the manor of Great Linford in Buckinghamshire. He likewise authorized his exchequer to pay his queen four hundred pounds yearly, 
in liquidation of her expenses incurred for her daughters, Elizabeth and Mary, and this revenue was continued till their disposal in marriage. These royal children were nursed at the palace of Sheen. The hand of his infant heiress was more than once deceitfully proffered by Edward the Fourth as a peace offering to his enemies, when fortune frowned upon him. He thus deluded the Nevilles when he was their prisoner at Middleham. Next he endeavored to interrupt the treaty of marriage between the Lancastrian Prince of Wales and Anne of Warwick, by offering my lady princess to Queen Margaret as a wife for her son. On the subsequent flight of Edward the Fourth from England, the young Elizabeth and her two little sisters were the companions of their distressed mother in Westminster Sanctuary. The birth of her eldest brother Edward in that asylum removed the Princess Elizabeth for some years from her dangerous proximity to the disputed garland of the realm. When liberated from the sanctuary by her victorious father, she was carried with the rest of his children to the tower, and was sojourning there during the dangerous assault made on that fortress by Falconbridge from the river. The full restoration of Edward the Fourth succeeded these dangers, and the peaceful festivals followed the re-establishment of the line of York. At a ball given in her mother's chamber at Windsor Castle, in honor of the visit of Louis of Burgess, 1472, the young Elizabeth danced with her royal father, she being then six or seven years old. She afterwards danced with the Duke of Buckingham, the husband of her aunt, Catherine Woodville. The same year, her father offered her in marriage to the young exiled Earl of Richmond, with no very sincere intentions. When the princess was about nine years old, her father made an expedition to France, with the intention of reconquering the acquisitions of Henry V. Before he embarked, he made his will, dated at Sandwich, in which he thus mentions Elizabeth. Item, we will that our daughter Elizabeth have ten thousand marks towards her marriage, and that our daughter Marie have also ten thousand marks, so that they be governed and ruled by our dearest wife, the queen. And if either of our said daughters do marry thainself, without such advice and assent, so as they be thereby disparaged, as God forbid, then she, so marrying herself, have no payment of her ten thousand marks. A French war was averted by the kingdom of France, submitting to become tributary to Edward the Fourth. In the Articles of Peace, Elizabeth was contracted to the Dauphin Charles, eldest son of the astute monarch, Louis the Eleventh, Thus was her hand, for the fourth time, tendered to her father's adversaries. Edward the Fourth, at the same time, surrendered to his son-in-law the titular right to the long-contested dukedom of Guienne or Aquitaine. These territories were to be considered part of Elizabeth's dower. From the hour of her contract with the heir of France, Elizabeth was always addressed in the palace as Madame la Dauphine, and a certain portion of the tribute that Louis XI paid to her father was carried to account for her use as the daughter-in-law of the king. She was taught to speak and write French. She could likewise speak and write Spanish. She could, at an early age, read and write her own language. For her royal sire sent for a scrivener, the very best in the city, who taught her and her sister Mary to write courthand as well as himself. The following is a specimen of the Princess Elizabeth's penmanship in childhood, written in a book of devotion. In this sentence of eight words, only one is written according to modern orthography. 
this book is mine elizabeth the king's daughter is the meaning of the above words which are written in the old english character now confined to law deeds but which was soon after superseded by the modern or italian hand as the appointed time of elizabeth's marriage with the dauphin charles approached her dower was settled and rich dresses in the french fashion were made for her when suddenly without previous intimation the contract was broken by louis the eleventh demanding the heiress of burgundy in marriage for the dauphin this slight offered to elizabeth infuriated her father so much that the agitation is said to have occasioned his death the fortunes of the young elizabeth suffered the most signal reverse directly she lost her royal sire and only efficient protector from westminster palace she was with her second brother and young sisters hurried by the queen her mother into the sanctuary of westminster which had formerly sheltered her in childhood but elizabeth of york was no longer an unconscious child who sported as gaily with her little sisters in the abbot of westminster's garden as she did in the flowery meads of sheen she had grown up into the beauties of early womanhood and was the sharer of her royal mother's woes the sad tale of this queen's calamities has already been told by us how much the princess elizabeth must have grieved for her two murdered brothers may be gathered from the words of her literary dependent bernard andreas who knew her well the love he says she bore her brothers and sisters was unheard of and almost incredible the treaty of betrothment privately negotiated between elizabeth of york and henry of richmond by their respective mothers was the first gleam of comfort that broke on the royal prisoners in sanctuary after the murder of the innocent princes in the tower the young princess promised to hold faith with her betrothed in case of her death before her contract was fulfilled her next sister sicily was to take her place but it is a singular fact that neither at this time nor at any other period of her life was the slightest proposal made by the partisans of the house of york of placing elizabeth on the throne as sole sovereign even her near relatives her half-brother dorset and her uncle lionel woodville bishop of salisbury when they raised the standard of revolt against richard the third at salisbury simultaneously with buckingham's rebellion in the autumn of fourteen eighty three proclaimed the earl of richmond henry the seventh although he was a distant exile who had done no more for the cause than taken an oath to marry elizabeth if he ever had it in his power as these nobles had just escaped from sanctuary which they had shared with elizabeth of york and her mother and must have recently and intimately known their plans and wishes this utter silence on her claims as the heiress of edward the fourth is the more surprising in truth it affords another remarkable instance of the manner in which norman prejudice in favor of salic law had corrupted the common or constitutional law of england regarding the succession the violation of this ancient national law had given rise to the most bloody civil wars which had vexed the country since the conquest before buckingham's revolt took place the royal ladies in sanctuary had enjoyed the protection of their near relatives dorset and bishop lionel woodville who had taken refuge there in their company and how efficient a protection an ecclesiastic of the high rank of bishop lionel must have proved when they were sheltered in the very bosom of the church may be imagined 
but the bishop and Dorset were both obliged to fly to France, owing to the utter failure of Buckingham's insurrection, and after their exile, the situation of Elizabeth of York and her mother became very irksome. A cordon of soldiers, commanded by John Nesfield, a squire of Richard III's guard, watched night and day round the abbey, and the helpless prisoners were reduced to great distress. Thus they struggled through the sad winter of 1483, but surrendered themselves in March. Elizabeth's mother had been unjustly blamed for this measure, but it was the evident effect of dire necessity. The princess Elizabeth was forced to own herself the illegitimate child of Edward IV. She had to accept a wretched annuity, and, as a favor, was permitted to contemplate the prospect of marrying a private gentleman. Such were the conditions of a cruel act of Parliament, passed under the influence of Richard III's military despotism in the preceding January. The act, it is well known, was indicted by Bishop Stillington, the mortal foe of her mother's house, who added to this the more intolerable injury of protecting a union between Mr. William Stillington, his natural son, and the princess. This unfortunate lover of Elizabeth met with a fate far severer than his presumption merited, for being shipwrecked on the coast of Normandy, he was, adds Comines, taken prisoner, and by mistake, starved to death. A mistake, perhaps, instigated by some of the indignant kindred of the princess, who were then refugees in France. The princess Elizabeth was certainly separated from her unfortunate mother when they left the sanctuary, since that queen was placed under the control of the same officer who had so inexorably kept watch and ward round the abbey. Meantime, the princess and her sisters were received at court with some appearance of regard by Richard III, and with great affection by his queen, who always, says a contemporary, treated Elizabeth of York as a sister. Indeed, it ought to be remembered that Elizabeth was one of Anna Warwick's nearest female relatives, independently of the wedlock with Richard III. As the princess was seen so frequently in the company of Queen Anne, after leaving sanctuary, she was most likely consigned to her charge. She was certainly lodged in the palace of Westminster. Here she found her father's old friend, Lord Stanley, in an office of great authority, having been appointed by the usurper, steward of the royal household, a place he held in the reign of Edward IV. It is well known that this nobleman was stepfather to Henry of Richmond, the betrothed husband of the Princess Elizabeth, and that his wife, Margaret Beaufort, was exiled from the court, and in disgrace with the usurper, for having projected the union of her son with the princess. How Stanley contrived to exonerate himself is not ascertained. In fact, there is from this period an utter hiatus on all authentic intelligence regarding the proceedings of Elizabeth, from the time when she sat with Queen Anne, royally attired in Westminster Hall at Christmas, 1484, till the death of Richard III. In the absence of regular information, perhaps a metrical narrative, called Song of the Lady Bessie, deserves some attention, being written by Humphrey Brereton, an officer and vassal belonging to Lord Stanley. He is proved to have been a contemporary of Elizabeth, and his costume and language are undeniably of that era. A cautious abstract from Brereton, limited to those passages which are connected with his asserted agency in renewing Elizabeth's engagements with Henry Richmond, here follows. 
The princess, according to Brereton, having accidentally met Lord Stanley at a time and place convenient for conference, urged him passionately by the name of Father Stanley, and with many reminiscences of all he owed to her father, to assist her in the restoration of her rights. At first, Lord Stanley repulsed her, declaring he could not break the oath he had sworn to King Richard, observing, moreover, that women were proverbially unstable of counsel. Elizabeth renewed her importunities, but when he seemed quite inflexible, her color changed as pale as lead, her facts then shone as golden wire, she tear it off beside her head. After this agony, she sunk into a swoon, and remained sometimes speechless. Lord Stanley was overcome by the earnestness of her anguish. Stand up, Lady Bessie, he said. Now I see you do not feign. I will tell you that I have long thought of the matter as you do. But it is difficult to trust the secrecy of women, and many a man is brought to great woe by making them his confidants. He then added, that his adherents would rise at his bidding, if he could go to the northwest in person, but that he durst not trust a scribe to indict his intentions in letters. This difficulty the princess obviated by declaring that she could indict and write as well as the scrivener who taught her. Then Lord Stanley agreed she should write the letters without delay. Among the other circumstances related by the princess to Lord Stanley in this interview, there is one, in strong coincidence, with the propensity to dabble in fortune-telling and astrology, which was a weakness belonging to the House of York. She said, that her father, being one day studying a book of magic in the palace of Westminster, was extremely agitated even to tears, and though earls and lords were present, none durst speak to him but herself. She came and knelt before him for his blessing, upon which, he threw his arms around her, and lifted her into a high window, and when he had sat there, he gave her the reason or horoscope he had drawn, and bade her show it to no one but to Lord Stanley, for he had plainly calculated that no son of his would wear the crown after him. He predicted that she would be queen, and the crown would rest in her descendants. When Stanley and the princess had agreed in their intentions, we must part, lady, the earl said then, but keep this matter secretly, and this same night, at nine or ten, in your chamber I think to be. Look that you make all things ready, your maids shall not our counsel here, and I will bring no man with me but Humphrey Brereton, my trusty squire. That evening, Lord Stanley and Brereton disguised themselves in manner strange, and went and stood at a private wicket, till the princess, recognizing stanley by a signal made with his right hand admitted him it was the cold season for there was fire in her apartment of which brereton gives this pretty sketch charcoals and chimneys there were cast candles on sticks were burning high she oped the wicket and let him in saying welcome lord and night so free a rich chair was set for him another for the fair lady they ate the spice and drank the wine to their study then they went, the lady then so fair and free, with rude as red as rose in May, she kneeled down upon her knee. In this attitude Elizabeth commenced writing the letters dictated by Lord Stanley. Their contents are detailed by Rareton. He is too exact in all points of fact 
as to the genealogy and individual particulars of the persons he named, to leave a single doubt that his metrical narrative was written from facts, and by a contemporary of Elizabeth of York. For careless as he is in regard to the general history of his era, which, indeed, had assumed neither form nor shape in his lifetime, he is wonderfully accurate in all the peculiarities of the costume and private history of his day, and the closer he is sifted, the more truthful does he seem, in minute traits, which must have been forgotten had the work been written a century afterwards. The dictation of these letters proves this assertion, for he shows the odd expedients men in authority resorted to when they could neither read nor write, and therefore had to depend wholly on the fidelity of a scrivener, on whose transcription they placed their seals, as proof that the missive was to meet credence from the recipient party, and such person was often beset with doubts as to whether the engrossed scroll, which bore no identity of handwriting, was not a treacherous fiction sealed with a stolen signet. The expedients of the unlearned but sagacious Stanley in this dilemma are well worth of attention. To convince his friends that these letters really were no forgery, he relates to each some particular incident, only known between themselves, and which no false scribe could invent. To his eldest son, for instance, he bade the princess commend him and charge him to remember, when they parted at Salford Bridge, how hard he pulled his finger, till the first joint gave way, and he exclaimed with pain. By such token Lord Stanley bade him credit this letter, and meet him at a conference in London, disguised like a Kendall merchant. Sir William Stanley was requested, to come to the conference like a merchant of Beaumaris, or Carnarvon, with a retinue of Welshmen who could speak no English. Sir John Savage, Stanley's nephew, was summoned as a Chester merchant. But of all, the letter to Gilbert Talbot, and reminisces Lord Stanley recalled to him, are the richest in costume, and the peculiar features of the age. Lord Stanley thus directs the princess, Commend me to the good Gilbert Talbot, a gentle squire forsooth is he. Once on a Friday, well I wot, King Richard called him traitor high, but Gilbert to his falchion pressed, a bold esquire forsooth is he. There durst no sergeant him arrest, he is so perilous of his body. In Tower Street I met him then, going to Westminster Sanctuary. I lighted beside the horse I rode, the purse from my belt I gave him truly, I bade him ride down to the northwest, and perchance he might live a night to be. Wherefore, Lady Bessie, at my request, pray him to come and speak with me. After the princess had written these dispatches, and Lord Stanley had sealed them with his seal, they agreed that Humphrey Brereton, who had always been true to King Edward the Fourth, should set out with the letters to the northwest of England. Lord Stanley and his men slept that night in Elizabeth's suite of apartments, but she watched till dawning of the day. And Bessie waked all that night, there came no sleep within her eye. Soon in the morn as the day spring, up riseth the young Bessie, and maketh haste in her dressing. To Humphrey Brereton gone is she, and when she came to Humphrey's bower, with a small voice called she, Humphrey answered the lady bright, saying, who calleth here so early? I am King Edward's daughter, right, the Countess clear, young Bessie. In all haste, with means and might, thou must come to Lord Stanley. 
the lady fair and sweet guided humphrey to the bedside of his master who gave him directions for the safe delivery of six letters humphrey summoned sir william the brother of lord stanley at holt castle lord strange at latham house edward and james stanley from manchester with their cousin sir john savage lastly he arrived at sheffield castle with his missive for gilbert talbot fair and free whose reception of elizabeth's letter is highly characteristic when he had that letter looked upon a loud laughter laughed he fair fall that lord in his renown to stir and rise beginneth he fair fall bessie the countess clear that such counsel giveth truly commend me to my nephew nigh of blood the young earl of shrewsbury bid him not dread or doubt of good in the tower of london if he be i shall make london gate to tremble and quake but my nephew rescued shall be commend me to that countess clare king edward's child young bessie tell her i trust in jesu who hath no peer to bring her her love from the over the sea the iteration of the expression countess clare which is applied by all her partisans to elizabeth of york certainly meant more than a descriptive epithet relative to her complexion or why should the term countess be always annexed to it in truth the lady bessie was by indubitable right the moment her brothers were dead the heiress of the mighty earldom of clear or clare as the representative of her ancestress elizabeth de burgh the wife of lionel second son of edward the third the title of duke of clarence which originally sprang from this inheritance might be resumed by the crown but the great earldom of clare or clare was a female fife and devolved on elizabeth her partisans certainly meant to greet her as its rightful and legitimate owner when they termed her countess clare for however clear or bright she might be that species of complexion by no means brought any rational connection with the title of countess when brereton returned from his expedition he found lord stanley walking with king richard in the palace garden stanley gave him a sign of secrecy and humphrey declared before the king that he had been taking a vacation of recreation among his friends in cheshire after a coaxing and hypocritical speech of richard regarding his affection for the poor commonality he went to his own apartments in the palace brereton then obtained an interview with the princess to whom he detailed the success of his expedition elizabeth received the intelligence with extraordinary gratitude and agreed to meet her confederates in secret council when they arrived from the north the palace of meeting was an old inn in the london suburbs between holborn and islington an eagle's foot was chalked on the door as the token of the place of meeting for the disguised gentlemen who came from cheshire and lancashire thither according to our poet the princess and stanley repaired secretly by night after elizabeth had conferred with her allies and satisfied herself that they would not murder richmond out of their yorkist prejudices if he trusted himself among the stanley powers she agreed to send him a ring of betrothal with a letter informing him of the strength of the party propitious to the union of york and lancaster humphrey brereton undertook the dangerous task of carrying the dispatches he embarked at liverpool a port then little known to the rest of england but the shipping and all other matters there were at the command of the house of stanley when the malady of queen anne became hopeless and she evidently drew near her end 
a rumor prevailed in the palace and from thence spread over the country that the king on her demise intended to espouse his niece elizabeth it was a report that excited horror in every class of the english people and in no one as all historians expressly declare so much as in the mind of the young princess herself who detested the idea of the abhorrent union it may be inferred that she had not concealed her aversion from her uncle since after the queen's death she was sent into restraint at the castle of sheriff hutton in yorkshire richard himself perceiving the public disgust gave up the idea of marrying elizabeth immediately the funeral of his wife was over he called a meeting of the civic authorities in the great hall of st john's clerkenwell just before easter fourteen eighty five and in their presence distinctly disavowed any intention of espousing his niece and forbade the circulation of the report as false and scandalous in a high degree a little while before this proclamation the same chronicler states that a convocation of twelve doctors of divinity had sat on a case of the marriage of an uncle and niece and had declared that the kindred was too near for a pope's bull to sanction End of section one. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.